0: Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the
1: Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more
2: on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org.
3: It is genuinely my, my pleasure to, uh, to introduce Josh, uh, who is here uh, to talk about the very difficult challenge of making a weekly news, weekly news magazine, A Profitable Enterprise. That's a business week, Bloomberg now, Bloomberg Business Week, is a, a very important institution. And uh, it's important, in my opinion, that it succeed. And I know that Josh's focus as the editor uh, has been on that very thing. He has a lot of experience, spent a lot of time with uh, John Huey at uh, Time Magazine, Time Inc. And he is also someone who has had the, the rather, I don't know, enviable experience of working for Rolling Stone and people like that, interviewing <laughs> the Dixie Chicks and Bruce Springsteen and uh, so forth. But those are not the topics for today.
1: No. unless we get to Q&A, and that's <laughs> what you want to talk about.
3: Um, I. Well, without further ado, Josh, we're very glad to have you and uh, very eager to hear what your thinking is about this this stubborn and difficult problem.
1: Sure, it's it's really an honor to be here, um, and I'm uh, as much as I'm grateful. I'm also grateful for the fact that my old boss John Huey, is not in the room for the first 10 minutes. Um, it's sort of like being asked to dance the horror with a gun in your mouth, but that's fine. Um, so I thought I would, you know, I, I'm always in a rush to get to Q&A because I, I like. Hearing what's on your mind, I'm going to spend just the first couple minutes talking to you a little bit about where we are today. Um, The title of this is The Path to Profit, which was meant only half in jest. But I think the the key thing to take away is there is no single path, Um, that we're in not just the most disruptive moment in the history of journalism, but the most disruptive moment in the history of information. Um, And it is quite something to sit in one of these chairs and try and figure out not just day-to-day how to compete, for people's attention, but week to week how to deal with new and disruptive technologies that don't care at all about journalism, um, but that you have to view as opportunities. So uh, uh, why don't I just start with a little bit of autobiography. Um, I was hired to Time Magazine uh, in 1999 by Walter Isaacson. Um, When I arrived there, Time had 450 editorial employees, uh, and it was in its first and only $100 million profit year. Um, Alex and I were talking about before, they served dinner on China three nights a week um, with Crystal. And most of the time when you sat around the table, people were talking with great mournful tones about the eradication of the liquor cart, which was an airline cart that was wheeled around to the journalists on closing nights with their preferred alcohol. Um, So things were pretty good financially (laughs) at that point. Um, I spent much of my first year there wandering the halls and trying to figure out basically what everyone did. And I would say that the most successful I got was that I understood what a third to maybe half did. And there were a couple of us who had been hired mostly because of our age and Walter's optimism. And I remember sitting around a table and saying, I, I think it's possible this is some form of long con that has been working for a very long time. And I never quite shook that feeling, regardless of the quality of the work and, the, and its import. Um, everything that, that Time was predicated on was the notion that on the demand side, readers had an obligation to read Time Magazine. Um, I just I, you know I 'm now forty years old I've been in this business for 19 years I've never thought that was true I don't think readers read out of obligation, um, and the first thing that happened when distribution changed was that that was proven to be totally correct. They read out of a desire to find out what is going on at any given moment, and particularly they read on the web to be made smarter and save time and so much of the disruption that we've seen has been around a failure to understand that when it comes to the Web. And as each platform moves on, um, we need to understand it, too. Um, Alex mentioned that I, I was, for a time, the music critic is among other jobs there. And while that has little relevance to what we talk about today, the one thing that it does train you is to understand a medium and to understand its message. And I don't particularly like country music, but I invested a lot of time figuring out what makes a successful country music song. And and to some degree what I have to do today, whether I care about Vine on Twitter or not, is to figure out what is going to make it successful for me. Um, I think that the money was so good and the jobs were so good for so long in in traditional journalism that people didn't bother to ask those questions about our forms. Um, I guarantee you, whether it's Martin or anyone else, those questions are, are almost the only thing we're asking today. So, uh, my career at Time was terrific. I got to write almost anything I wanted. I worked through various sections of the magazine. Um, I was the chief European correspondent for a while in London, where I ran into someone else I know here. Um, And when I got back in 2006, the disruption had begun in a significant way. There were layoffs. Um, I took a job running the website because I wanted to be a part of figuring out what was going to happen in our business and not sit downstream of it. Um, You know, I, I think. Time.com was fairly successful in its in its day. Um, it generated a lot of traffic, it generated a lot of revenue, and none of that stopped the overall decline in the revenue and readership of the print magazine. Uh, no matter what we were telling ourselves at the time about how it might put a halt to it and spread things, it didn't work. The magazine got smaller and smaller. Um, you know, I would say this whether you're here or not. John Huey is the person most responsible for um, maintaining the integrity of what the magazine was trying to do, fighting off corporate interests, insisting that once you take an editorial magazine below 32 pages a week you may as well not print it at all, um, fighting for staffing. But it's exhausting. And no matter how um, successful you feel on any given day about your ability to cover the news, when you reach the end of October and John and you sit down and talk about what percentage you have to cut, man, it, it's brutal. And you know I, I hate to say it, but I have given many journalists their worst day. I've had to lay people off time and time again, particularly while I was at Time, Inc. And at a certain point, you think, well, am I just supposed to turn out the lights? Is that how this is going to end? So in 2009, I got a phone call um, from Norm Pearlstein, who was the editor-in-chief of The Wall Street Journal, was the editor-in-chief of Time, Inc. And he asked me um, to have breakfast with him the next morning. Um, and Norm, who has a voice like Zeus, when he asks you to do something, you do it no matter what it was. The breakfast may have been in Nicaragua, and I knew that I had to be there. Um, and Norm basically had taken this job as the chief content officer at Bloomberg, and he said, what do you think of Business Week?" And I said, I haven't read it in five years. And he said, he sort of stared at me. Neither have I.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so he, and so I was like, whew, now we can order. Um, basically, what he presented to me was an opportunity. Um, Mike Bloomberg grew up reading Business Week, and one of the things that I had not accounted for in taking over a business publication is that there are a lot of people who have a, an emotional, a deeply emotional attachment to it. And Mike Bloomberg learned about business by reading Business Week. And he thought um, that it needed new editorial leadership, it needed an infusion, and that ultimately um, it could be very good for Bloomberg's business. Now, um, I said earlier there's no single path to profit, and I want to just pause for a moment Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't understand what Bloomberg does. um, Mike Bloomberg is one of the richest people in the world because he started Bloomberg LP. Um, It makes basically one product, which is a Bloomberg terminal. It is a box. It does not distinguish itself based on its good looks or advanced technology, but what it does do is calculate originally bond spreads for people who need to trade all day long. And it does it with such amazing uh, celerity that once one trader has one, all the other traders need them. Um, On top of that, uh, they decided to start adding information and analytics, and a news division was born. And that news division has achieved great things over the last 20 years, but one of the indispensable things it does If you are a trader and you optimize your Bloomberg terminal, your machines trade on headlines. Um, And so before us mortals can actually finish reading a breaking news headline, the way high-volume trading works these days, the machines have already made millions of trades. So if you do not have a Bloomberg terminal and you trade, you are a loser. (laughs) And the best part for Bloomberg LP is that um, Bloomberg didn't want to bother with pricing because he knew um, that all of these traders and all of their different firms were going to try and beat each other up around pricing. So the price is fixed. It moves with the cost of living, um, and right now it's $21,000 a year, and you must buy a two-year lease. It's a very good business. Um, What Mike Bloomberg thought was that um, a consumer outlet would help broaden the understanding and appeal of what Bloomberg LP does. And, by the way, he just liked it, so they bought it. And I was given this very strange opportunity. Um, while at Time, Inc., I felt quite passionately that we needed to figure out what it is was going to make a sustainable model of journalism. And in my conversations with Norm about coming to Bloomberg, um, basically we had an opportunity to do it with much less pressure and much more tolerance for risk. Um, and that appealed to me tremendously. So I looked at the magazine and um, I just had a couple of immediate thoughts about it. One, it it needed a redesign. Two, as a weekly, it was not existing in the present tense. No readers expect you to tell them the future, but you you have to actually tell them what is going on in the present. Um, and it had forfeited that function. Um, I don't know. Do, do people know why magazine subscriptions? The number one reason people cancel magazine subscriptions, regardless of the type of magazine, it's guilt. Guilt. They pile up in the corner, and you think, "Oh my God, I should be reading it. I'm not reading it." People cancel out of guilt, and so my goal was to make a magazine that if our, if our readers, our, our subscribers, are opening it between the walk from the mailbox to the front door, that we got a pretty good shot, right? On top of that, um, it has to have a function. Um, if you're going to read a weekly in 2012 or 2013, um, it ought to be comprehensive. Not just have the aura of comprehensiveness, but be genuinely comprehensive. And so I, I did a fairly taxonomic exercise about what a competitive business person wants and needs to see every week, divided the magazine that way into five sections up front um, that comprise about 30 pages, 32 pages on any given week. On top of the sort of um, function that it has to serve, these are emotional products. Um, They're one of the last information products that actually comes into your home that you hold and take with you and read in bed and has a tactile experience. And so I felt that... um, in addition to preparing people to compete for the week ahead, we needed some form of seduction. Um, to me, nothing is more seductive than a great, long-form piece of journalism, a narrative that can surprise you, take you in all sorts of different ways, and reward your investment, even at four to 6,000 words. So we carved out a feature well. And then we did a back piece of 10 to 12 pages that's really about culture um, and the unique culture around business. Redesigned it, um, restaffed it to some degree, um, and launched it, and on top of that, created a web app, I mean, created a, um, an iPad app that really did the same sort of questioning around format. What do people reading this publication on an iPad app actually want? How does it differ from a publication that happens in print? How do we serve them? And how do we do it so that we're not just spending money all over the place to make it happen? And the same thing on the web. You know, we, Martin knows more about web consumption than probably anybody in the world, but um, there is a different behavior when you're sitting at your desktop and clicking around at lunch and the voicemail light is blinking and your boss is sending you emails. You, you are in some ways offended by my long-form lead <laughs> if you're sitting there at 12.30, because what it says to you is, whoever is putting this together has no idea who I am and what I need at this moment. So while this writer is busy clearing their throat, I have to get stuff done and I want to know what's happening. And so uh, you know I think to you know all ego on the table the only thing that I bring that has any sort of special sauce is an ability to bear that in mind anytime we enter a new field is that we have to rigorously understand what users want when they are using new technology and what our job is as far as filling it on the supply side um, to the degree that we've been successful um, subscriptions are up we added eighty thousand subscribers and readers to our rate base last year, um, mostly on the international <coughs> side. But subscription rates are up. Advertising, um, look, it's down for everybody, but we're at the top of the down. Um, and there are definitely days, despite all that, when I feel like, how are we going to make this work? Um, for my company, um, there's no question that the, the purchase has been good. And. In part, that's because more people know what Bloomberg is, and in part because it really does bring value to a terminal subscriber. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we did a cover story on—not even a couple of years ago, last year—we did a cover story on Jeff Bezos and Amazon and the introduction of the Kindle Fire. And he came to Bloomberg Business Week because he wanted a long-form explanation of his strategy that he thought would be fair, critical but fair. Um, and what he gave us was exclusive information about the pricing and the model for the Kindle Fire. And at 7 a.m. on a Thursday, um, we published that information to the terminal subscribers who paid $21,000 for it. Um, if you owned a Bloomberg terminal that day and traded to Amazon, you rode that rise in the stock, which I think was 10 to 12% that morning. Um, at 9 o'clock, we put it out on the web, and the next morning, our subscribers got it. Um, every time we do that, we sell terminals. And at $21,000 a year, it's a good business for Bloomberg. So that's one path to profitability, and I concede I, it's not like I uh, was born on, th- on third base and thought i hit a triple. I was born <laughs> on home plate, okay? A man named Mike Bloomberg hit a home run, and then I got to stand there on home plate. At the same time, I feel all the pressure internally because this stuff is going to get sorted out. And my model is not the only model. Um, everything from Andrew Sullivan to independent bloggers to us to the New York Times is going through basically the same exercise of figuring out, how are we going to compete with all of this disruption, with all of these competitors with a low bar to entry, with advertisers who frankly don't know what they want um, and they don't know how to reach the people they want to even though they have more metrics to reach them than ever before, with subscribers who have endless uh, options uh, for their time? And ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm just going to tell you my, my own thinking on this is that the one currency I can control is the amount of time people spend with us. Um, wherever they go, whether it is on Twitter or Facebook, which is the most cursory form of engagement, to the iPad app, to the web, to the magazine, and to many places beyond that, including conferences and potentially nonfiction films. What I want is for people who care about business and economics to spend their time with us. Um, One thing I learned at Time is that the notion of the generalist is I don't see that necessarily surviving. Um, you know, If you're doing crisis in the Middle East one week and back pain the next, you can't reasonably expect people to deeply engage with you on any level. I uh, want to defend our turf. I want to um, execute within that realm as well as possible in every possible medium. And my sense is that if I can control that, if I can make a good product and get people to spend time with us, the rest of this is going to sort itself out, not in any one way, but in many ways. But that's the one thing I can control, and that's the bet that I've made on content. Um, and that kind of brings you up to speed on where we are. Um, I'm happy to talk more about absolutely anything
3: um, or anything that you want to talk about or raise. Um, by tradition, <clears throat> this uh, – the first question at these brown bag lunches is made by the director. But today we have the founding director with us, and I would like to cede that opportunity to Marvin Kalb, my friend and colleague, and uh, if you have a thought, uh, you would be, you have the floor. My only thought is that I'm not with it. (laughs) And I recognize that, and I'm trying to learn, but I'm way behind the curve, so
4: I will take a pass. Well,
1: let me say something to you, which is that I grew up with you, I spent time with you, and that has actually informed a lot of my decision-making and thinking about what we do here, is that um, we're at a moment when everyone's habits are being disrupted. I, even at a, in a family with, a, with two parents who worked, um, I grew up with the nightly news around the dinner table on the same channel, right? Um, I don't know if we're ever going to get back to that, but the earth is beginning to cool in our realm. Um, habits are being formed. And I feel immense pressure to get there with the right product as these habits are being formed because I do think there's something comforting in the routine with which you gather information. And so, to, to the degree that you say you are not with it, you absolutely inform how we go about thinking about this stuff. I'd like to
4: think that. <laughs> uh, well,
3: let me ask you uh, the, then the question how do you get people to spend time with you? What is your do you have a formula? Do you have a, uh, a an intuitive sense? How do you do
1: it? Yeah, I mean, look, some of this is absolutely about um, if you don't understand the zeitgeist, you're a little bit dead right now. I think um, there are a lot of people who came of age with bosses in the news business who um, were there as exemplars of rigor of a certain kind. Um, you know, the more I see of the leadership of people who are being successful, they are actually not just have an intuitive sense of what people are reading and talking about, but they actually use things like Chartbeat and Google Trends. And they never let one of those things pass and figure out what is our role in speaking about that, and sometimes there isn't one. Um, And if you can't speak about it with any sort of quality, you have to call off the dogs, because people have literally infinite choice. And um, when you're talking about who your competitors are, it used to be very simple. Um, It was the people who produced the product you produce it with the frequency with which you produce it. Um, today, our competitors are anyone who says the word "business" on a platform that someone else can reach, and so we have to be very smart about delivering the best quality experience for each of those formats it 's a huge pain in the ass it 's enormously difficult, but if either you accept the premise of what our business is or you die
3: Can you figure it out like you say you figured out what makes a successful country song yeah, I mean to some
1: degree look i I think um, the best example of someone who has figured out specifically the web, which I think is a, a good place to start because it's in some ways the, the most troublesome and biggest elephant in the room, is that um, it does come down to making people smarter and saving them time and maybe giving them a little bit of entertainment. And so when you look at the things that are born native to the web, something like BuzzFeed, they're unapologetic about the 27 funniest puppy photos, right? And we can all be very snobbish about it, but I guarantee you 50% of the people in this room have looked at it, right? Right? And so the flattening of that is something that's, that's actually really interesting to me. Um, for a long time, one of the fraudulent things that um, people in magazine, web, and newspaper advertising would say is that we, you should charge, we can charge you more because we deliver this premium product. And one of the things I've seen in the last two years is that advertisers are realizing <coughs> the same people who go to Reuters and Bloomberg and the New York Times are looking at BuzzFeed and um, the Huffington Post and AOL, um, and so they're driving our CPMs down. Um, that's a challenge
3: I want to invite students in the room to ask questions if they have any or get the first crack and if not uh, the floor is open oh yes I'm a subscriber and
1: I <laughs> <Yay. laughs> two
3: subscriptions one each for my son and son-in-law and I read it and I like it very much oh, although God. I'm not a business person by any means what I particularly like is the politics and policy section and your reporting of data on states, such as which states are trying to regulate abortion, which states um, have opiate problems, mm-hmm. uh, which states have people who can't afford medical care, etc. cetera. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your politics and policy Section.
1: Sure. I mean, it's a, that's a good example of where I think we can be clear in our specialty. Um, you know, Lots of people cover the election in all sorts of different ways. Ultimately, what I know about our reader is that um, they probably have an opinion one way or the other about who they should vote for, and they have no shortage of places to go to help inform them about that decision. Um, but there's a real market inefficiency around policy around telling people what's happening in the world, who's making the policy, and what the ramifications of that policy are, specifically on business and profit, um, but generally around policy. Um, and one of the places that, you know, as I said, we want to distinguish ourselves in everything that we do. We have to be different and we have to serve that market. And one of the interesting things that we discovered about that inefficiency is that when you fill it, people come. And so whether it's Ezra Klein and Wonkbook doing lots of linking to us, um, whether it's a knowledge that people in the White House are actually reading you. But readers like yourselves who are more general interest, you know, that wasn't being served. And complexity is one of the reasons. But also this sense that um, there isn't enough audience for it. Well, now that we can reach lots and lots of different people in lots of different places, one of the advantages is that you can actually grow audience around something that previously people didn't think they could make money on. So it, it was very much beyond, you know, it being a passionate element of editorial coverage, we absolutely saw a place where we could make a difference and where people who wanted to reach those folks, and there are many advertisers who want to reach them, could reach them.
3: Have you made any missteps in terms of the content, things that you've wanted to try and found that you were wrong?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, so um, one of my former bosses at Time Inc., um, Jim Kelly, used to describe fl- editing Time Magazine as flying an Airbus and that he was always cognizant of making sure that the wings didn't dip too left or too right. And he, he, he I, I always thought that was an interesting metaphor. It's not the one that I use because I think um, there's great liberation in knowing that um, you have to try a bunch of stuff really rapidly. But I do think our audience will tell me every day if we are too far from business and economics. They keep us in our lane. Um, it's not to say we don't experiment. It's not to say we haven't done stories where the link to business and economics isn't either tenuous or maybe not even there at all, but generally speaking, um, they'll tell us if if we lack credibility in a certain area. Um, the feedback is pretty instantaneous.
3: Hmm. Questions, Martin. What's your take on this? The prospects that they had.
0: Well, I mean, the, the the thing I appreciated most about the the talk, in addition to the kind of words about me, <laughs> was, was that you know you really. Honed in on the essential issue of the terminal, which is you know the thing that is subsidizing everything else at Bloomberg. And I guess the question I have is: I mean, I don't know very much about that, that business. It seems to me to be a beautiful thing. Can that go on forever? Is that something that's subject to disruption? Or is it just kind of forever, Josh?
1: So, um, <laughs> There are a lot of people who look at the business and say, well, we could do that. And Google's one of them. I mean, I've had conversations with people at Google who say, you're, you're basically standing between the customer and information and giving it to them in a presentation layer. We do that all the time. We could steal your business. And I sort of look at them and say, right, because you're famous for your customer service. And there are two pieces to it one is getting the information, and the other is making sure that it is optimized to each individual customer. Um, getting the information together is not as easy as it sounds. Some of it actually involves laying pipe to places like uh, the the Bureau of Labor Statistics um, and getting there faster. And speed is of the essence. And some of it is in deploying a massive customer service um, layer that talks to each customer, knows what they want, designs functions for them, integrates the systems. And those two things really do help build a pretty big wall. You know, it takes a lot. Now, could you build a Bloomberg light? that focused on only one function, two functions? Yeah, and you could charge less. Um, but
0: but there's not a lot of price sensitivity in that market. If you're a hedge fund or a private equity firm right. or a Wall Street bank, the difference between $10,000 and $8,000 in terminal is not going to change That's right. your life if it's an advantage to pay a little bit more.
1: Yeah, and the, and the key is to keep creating small advantages. And so that business does work very, very well.
0: Um, so is that – I mean – just to cut to the yeah. point, do you
1: think that's the new model for journalism? In no. other words? I think that it, I'm anomalous, and, and maybe there's a couple of other organizations that could afford to have um, you know, hood ornament-style consumer organizations that, ha, that work both ways. But I don't think there's one. Uh, you know, I think Andrew, what Andrew Sullivan is up to is an interesting model for the independent individual journalist. I think what the New York Times is up to is an interesting model for bigger news organizations that have a cultural imprint. That goes beyond news. You know, the New York Times is a great newspaper, but ultimately, um, I think its biggest value is that in people, it, people are proud to be associated with the New York Times as readers, and in a culture. Um, what I worry about for the Times is that what happens when those people get older, and can you create the behavior in younger people to say, you know what, seventy five hundred bucks a year for me to be a part of this community is well worth it, and that, I, I know that you feel that pretty urgently. Uh, what's what's fascinating to me. About this, and what, what gets me excited about these challenges is I do think there's going to be a, a model for almost every single one of these places that's different from the others. And for 60 years, the model was exactly the same. You went to press with something, and you had two forms of revenue one on the subscription side and one on the advertising side. And now, whether, you know, just a, as an example of something that's non traditional journalism, but there's a guy named Brian Lamb. Um, Brian was, I believe, at Engadget for years. Just on the gerbil wheel. I mean, cranking out tech reviews day in, day out. And I met Brian for lunch three years ago, and he looked like hell. And he looked terrible. Brian is 35 years old. And he said, i got to get out of this. I can't do it. He went to Hawaii. He surfs three four times a day, and he launched a site called The Wire Cutter. The Cutter has advertising, and it's a great product. If you are into consumer electronics at all, I recommend you go look at it. It's, it's a great product. Basically what it does is it says... You want to buy a TV? So you could go to CNET and have people arguing with you about inches and quality and plasma. Or you could go to the Wirecutter, and there's a very smart, almost New York review of books style essay about the, the inexpensive version to buy, the great version to buy, the version I'd buy. And if you imagine that taken to everything from televisions to vacuum cleaners, it's very smart. And at the end of it, you click a link to purchase it at Amazon and they're making $500,000 a month in revenue on those referrals. And yes, it is a form of journalism. Now, it's not international journalism, but it is a form of journalism that's taken quite seriously. So that's a model, right? Yeah. Andrew's got a model. And and Andrew's model is predicated on the fact that, um, so Andrew Sullivan, I, I was at Time when Andrew brought his then nascent blog to time.com, and Andrew has a very high opinion of his work, as he should, but I was at a place at time where I couldn't get anybody to advertise against it. His traffic was growing, but, you know, and then you think about it from the advertiser side. Well, do I really want to be adjacent to a gay, Catholic, hawkish on foreign policy, social liberal who could at any point take a position that Satan would say, whoa, I'm not, no, that's too far. No, it doesn't make sense. If you're Chevron, are you paying $30 CPMs to be next to that? No, but there's traffic around it, right? So advertising as a model is out. Subscription on the individual reader model, yes, that makes sense. Now, that is not for everybody. Andrew is, again, anomalous. But what I think may be happening is a series of anomalies become the form of our business. (laughs) And there's one for everybody. I mean, there's a great story today, if you haven't seen it, about a blog called Whispers from the Loggia. It's a 30-year-old guy in Philadelphia who has the most influential blog about the Catholic Church and the Order of Cardinals. He's a guy. He's got a laptop. There's no advertising against it, but he's getting paid by his readers and has been doing it for eight years. So we need to be open to all this. And frankly, I I I think what the future of all of this looks like is a bunch of these different styles integrated. but it does the one. As I said, the one thing I can control is time, and if I can run mobile, web, print, a conference business, and potentially something in nonfiction film, you can spend a lot of time with us in a lot of different ways. And I don't have to diminish the quality of what I do and and hate myself for playing the ball game at its worst in any of those different mediums. And that's what I'm I'm committed to trying to execute. Thanks.
3: It's Bill. I,
2: I'm also one of your subscribers, but I'm afraid I'm one of those at-risk uh, subscribers who are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe maybe on, on the edge. Okay. Maybe feeling a little guilty about not using the uh, yep. any of the products enough. But I want to ask you about another model that seems to be gaining traction, maybe more on the newspaper side, and that's uh, marketing services. The Washington Post mm-hmm. announced this morning a fairly big step into that. The Atlantic has tried it with a couple of symbols. Yeah. Um, but it really does seem to go to the idea of creating new value for an important constituency (laughs) of your your advertisers we are talking about their brand itself becoming a story.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I have a somewhat visceral reaction to it, which is I don't think that's what anybody got in the business to do. Um, I understand the advertiser need, and (coughs) I'm in a way grateful that there are people who are willing to step in and fill it because that might mean that I don't have to do it. Um, I think it may work for some people. It doesn't work for us because of the risk, the greater risk to the business. The Atlantic's tangle with Scientology is a very good example where the readers basically said, you have got to be kidding me. You're going to run an advertorial for Scientology with the most credulous language there is? This affects your brand. And so, yes, I understand the need for, for advertisers to have their message out there, and they're willing to pay a premium for it. And Forbes is doing a similar thing. I'm blessed to be in a position where we don't have to consider it. I do think that for some people it will work as a model. Um, but it keeps me up at night. You know I don't think that it's something that's good for journalism and frankly, I don't think it's something that's great for advertisers i mean one of the one of the sort of shames of the whole Scientology Atlantic fracas was that what it overlooked was that. If the Atlantic was really doing a service for the Church of Scientology, it would have said, guys, it's not that we're not running it because we're worried about the controversy. We're not running it because it's not effective. You're not actually addressing some of the perceptions around you. You should go back and have another shot at it. So I, I just think it's a, it's a world that scares me a little bit, and I, I don't necessarily want to be a part of it, but I can see why people are tempted to do it. And it is working. You know, Forbes has a lot more traffic. Um, its revenue is up, it's stumbled onto something, and, and Louis Dvorkin's a very smart guy. Um, those are choices I am blessed not to have to make. Thanks.
0: Mm-hmm. I have a question about nonfiction video. Yeah. Uh, every time you've mentioned it, you've said potentially uh, nonfiction video.
1: You're a very and, shrewd listener. <laughs> and
0: um, I, uh, I, was, uh, I noticed how you described this, this narrative centerpiece that was a seduction in the print medium, and I'm wondering... Um, what is the plan, what is the barrier, and is it just as simple as how and how far away are we from that? Well,
1: problem? it is a way to address another need, which is that there are certain people who come to a news organization because they want the halo that's associated with it, right? And you don't get a one-page advertisement next to the tech section for a halo. You get it because you're trying to reach somebody to make a transaction. Um, but there are advertisers who have a lot of money who want to be associated with something great. And I want to get to know every single one of them. And in some ways, the the greatest claim that you can make on a person's time is by having them absorb mm-hmm. your movie, your story. Um, so, you know, you've seen lots of people migrating toward video, um, mostly because the CPMS are so high. And in fact, we've flooded the market, and the execution has been pretty lousy. And you know, no offense to to David Carr and A.O. Scott, but um, if I wanted two grouchy people to talk me through the Oscars, I got plenty of uncles. you know. Like, that's not effective video for me. But what I do think we need to do is, again, think about the medium and what it offers. And what it offers is a transportive experience. And there are some things that are actually best told through video that prose can never attach. Right. So if you want to know what it actually means to frack, well, I want to see it. The description isn't going to do it for me. Um, and video, the cost has come down, and there's still an aura around it that it's a special experience when you nail it. And I want to be in that business. I want to be in it because it's gratifying for me as a journalist and for the people who I work with, because I personally respond as a consumer to so much of that stuff. I mean, I, I have watched great Vimeo that, frankly, is right in our wheelhouse, and I want to be able to um, offer that to our advertisers and to our users. There's no reason we can't.
3: Would that be part of your online kind of operation, fundamental?
1: Part of what I want to do, I mean, the, this engagement strategy is very much about making people aware um, that we want to get them everywhere and that being a member of the Businessweek subscriber club, wherever you may choose to exercise it, comes with its benefits. Um, I had breakfast with John Micklethwaite not so long ago at The Economist, and you know, he's very complimentary about us, and The Economist has a great product. Um, the differences between our business right now are that the Economist average subscription is about 96 bucks and ours is 38. So if I can get us to 50, things look a lot different. And one of the ways I think you have to get people there is by telling them we provide value. Um, my greatest uh, frustration at Time Inc. was that the magazine kept coming down and down and down. And the art director there, every week we came out, he and I would look at each other and ask, ask each other the same question. Is this worth $4.99? These 32 editorial pages, did you pay $4.99 for that? Um, you got to earn your five bucks. And it's not about what you're charging for a subscription. It's your, what you put on that top corner, as if you're a news organization, is your declaration of value. That's what we think we're worth. And you got to ask yourself, are we worth it? So I like the idea, even though it's old-fashioned, if we can make a great 40-minute documentary that takes people to a place they've never been before, I will absolutely try and sell that to a sponsor who wants to have a placement on the packaging, a message before, a message after. I will shrink that, shrink wrap that with our magazine in the old-fashioned style, put it online. But I I want people to understand, in in return for their time, we
3: are going to reward them. Yes, over here. Um, You
2: mentioned a number of different sort of models, obviously different for all of them, but I'm just wondering if you could speak to a little bit what you see the changing roles of the journalists themselves um,
1: in these sort of, situations. Yeah, I mean, uh, what's, what strikes me is that um, when I started in journalism, there was almost no emphasis on getting to know our business at all. The, the most clueless people about publishing were journalists. No idea. <laughs> We were encouraged to. And part of that was because of the the famous wall between editorial and business, which has served us quite well. And part of it is it's such a great gig. And as I said, for some people, it feels like such a long con. You just never want to risk ending it with knowledge, God forbid. So I think people have actually, for the first time, engaged with some understanding. But I I can guarantee you there are people on my staff who have no idea what a CPM is. And it's 2013, and we've been playing in this realm for 15 years. Um, So that's on the one hand is that I think there is a, a dawning awareness um, that should still be better. On the other, there's um, an eagerness among some people who see the opportunity to get read and seen in more places, um, and you want to manage the risk. I mean, you know, Twitter is very risky, hugely risky. It's extemporaneous thought from journalists who previously had multiple layers of folks vetting their every word. Um, So I'm aware of that and manage it as closely as I can. And we've had some pretty serious screw-ups, as have many other organizations. And, again, some of it is you try and socialize and train. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of training for me as a journalist. It's not a – you know, it's a trade, uh, but it's not medicine. Anybody can go into this at any time. Um, One of the things, at least I've seen at Bloomberg, is there is a real emphasis on training. Um, Some of that's because of the complexity of finance – but um, you know, when the financial crisis hit, and on September 15th, 2008, no one at Time Inc. stopped and said, "Okay, we got to explain to our journalists what a CDO is." Bloomberg is very good about doing that training, and and we've adapted that training to technology as well, so that when Tumblr comes out, when Twitter really explodes into usage, we have seminars and explanations, um, and people need them. And we still could probably do much, much more. Is that the root of your question? Yeah.
2: Okay.
3: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Josh, uh, certainly, uh, metropolitan journalism is among the most threatened forms of journalism. Uh, and all the big city <coughs> papers are trying to figure figure this out. I wonder if your model uh, of uh, pro- toward profitability can apply. I mean, do you see? Is there a, communi- a metropolitan
2: community that can can be an audience in itself, or is that glue kind of uh, uh, fading?
1: Well, I I think that the 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 details are going to be different everywhere, but I do think that the one thing everyone can control is what they are in these mediums. And, and try and do just at the most basic level of diagnostician work on what it is a person in New York wants on their mobile phone that plays in the news and information space, right? Um, so uh, if you engage with that seriously, you got a shot, and you get to sort of sink or swim. I mean, wh- what I love about the web is it's pretty meritocratic. Um, you can complain about the business models. You can complain about the competition. But because you can be anywhere in a click, um, you're generally going there for a reason. You know, the numbers don't lie. And so, the question for a lot of these older organizations is how to adapt. And you know, now that I know a lot more about business than I did three years ago, think about all the companies that are dominant, Fortune 500 companies today that started off in a completely different business. AT and T. American Express, Wells Fargo. They had not just different businesses, completely different functions. And as technology changed, they changed the company to meet that need. Um, when you look at most magazines and most newspapers, they haven't. And so, I, I, you know, I, again, I go back to the Times, which has very admirably filled in a cultural space in the life of New Yorkers um, it, you know, New York Magazine tries to fill it, but New York Times fills that in a way that nobody else does, and that's very smart. But
3: it's also a national; it's not a community. No it, it is, community. but a
1: lot of w- a lot of what I see as progress for the New York Times is around enriching the lives of New Yorkers. And remember, it is not the number one paper in New York City. Um, so, for a metropolitan area, if you're the you know if you're in Detroit or Cleveland, how much of those people's lives centered around information about your city can you own? And what kind of information should you own? I mean, I I look at the Boston Globe sometimes, and it's amazing how big a bet they put on sports, right? I'm going to just guess that 40% of their traffic goes through those sports pages. Well, if they hadn't generated the content and made such an aggressive push, somebody else would have. So you do have to ask yourself, are we, as currently constituted, serving the very easy-to-measure desires of the people who live here? And I think all too often... Um, the disruption is a disruption in our business is a very convenient crutch for not doing that thinking. Um, you have to confront it head-on. Yeah. Oh,
2: hi, Josh. Hey, um uh, So it seems like we're kind of uh, discussing two things, one which may be easy to replicate and the other which, which might not, and the one that's not is really kind of the talented editor. And, uh, you know, and this is sort of what I think you've always kind of had the golden touch with, uh, the ability to recognize what quality and reader's interest sort of intersect. And that might come easy to you, but that's not easy to a lot of editors and maybe not as replicable as as you're saying in terms of identifying. Um, in terms of, like, business models, uh, I had I had two things that I wanted to uh, ask you about. The first is, you know, so you talked about businesses that have, uh, have changed and grown and adapted. Um, you know, where do you see the, the, you know, one of the things that we sort of, like, always kind of talked about a little bit in Time International was this idea of, you know, could we sort of go kind of the Forbes route and start hosting conferences and, you know, making money off those kind of things? And, and, you know, Mm -hmm. what have you been doing in Business Week and what do you think the future of that? And the other question is for the web, you know, you, you talked about how the Bloomberg terminal allows traders to move quickly on information, et cetera. Is there any way to kind of turn that on its head and use sort of some of the algorithms that quants might devise to figure out when a web story is about to go viral and sort of real-time auction off advertising against, against that, you know, if you mm-hmm. can go to, yeah.
1: So. so on the first piece of it, um, look, conferences are in some ways, every, there's too many, and there's too few that actually work. And so this year in January we launched a design conference, and it was predicated again on a market inefficiency, which is um, every CEO now understands the value of Johnny Ive and design to their business, and has no idea where to start, because CEOs really are the most granular people in the world and design is the most abstract form of expression. On the other hand, there are all these designers who um, would really like those clients and have no idea how to talk to them. And so we decided to position ourselves as the intermediary. And we held a very you know, very specific kind of design conference. Um, it was for 300 people. It was at the Dion Museum in San Francisco. And the feedback was great. And it was great because we really did focus on being the person who can convene around those very specific issues with takeaways. Um, We didn't make it bigger than we thought we could actually handle. Um, That's a a common problem for everybody. Um, And I think ultimately we'll be trying to do more and more of that. Um, But again, people's expectations are enormous. They really do believe if they're going to commit eight hours to a conference, that they're going to emerge with something tactile and profitable. Um, I see that as having changed dramatically. And, hey, it's for the better for everybody. If It makes us focus. Um, you can't just say, hey, we're Business Week. It's going to be a great conference. You actually have to detail your thinking around it. And you're going to be measured against all the other conferences because people are going to go online and talk about it. I'm fine with that. Um, I'll risk our best against other people's best any day. But I think that's a space that everybody's going to try and figure out what their play is. Um, remind me of the second half of the So
2: that. using sort of, uh, the, oh, right, the, kind of the
1: markets piece. Um, well, I'm going to turn to Martin on this. So my sense is that some of that is happening right now. Um, and that in the same way that um, television sales are really moving with, with ratings, there are definitely places where you can go on and bid for your CPMs and move them in. The challenge really is the balance between. So there's there's three sort of phases <laughs> to web advertising. There's the remnant piece where people are going and they're buying, um, and there's no interaction with a salesperson. They're just buying your back end inventory and sort of strafing it. There's the very high end sponsorship custom publishing piece where people want to own Bloomberg Business Week's coverage of uh, new energy solutions, for instance. You know Chevron might want that, and we can charge them a premium for being around content. It doesn't influence by them, but it's, you know, when we write about solar and wind and gas, they may want to be there, and they'll pay for that. And then there's this middle piece, and it doesn't really happen with the ad client, and it doesn't really happen with a tool, but it happens with agencies. And so anytime you suggest something like a meritocratic system of payment, it's that middle level <laughs> where it all sorts of boils down. Is that your take?
0: Yeah. And that's disappearing. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure on the high side, so yep. the gentleman's question here. Yeah, you know a lot of the a lot of the money is shifting over to the user side. Um, (coughs) That is your point about serving users, I think.
1: Yeah. So, I I don't see. I think it's possible, but there's a lot. There's a a big layer that has to go before we get there.
3: A couple of questions just occurred to me as you were talking. Yeah. The questions may not be relevant today, but how many magazines do you sell in the course of the year? Uh, What's your budget, and do you make any money?
1: So. How many magazines? Meaning, how many subscribers, or how many newsstand, or? how many
3: go out that are
1: sold, or so we have a, them out free? What, what do you do? We have um, nine hundred eighty thousand subscribers, um, and in that file, um, I would say you know, about twenty percent are pretty sort of you know airline miles purchases and things like that, and they tend to churn pretty quickly. But the file, um, our folks in circulation have done a great job at shoring up the file, and what I mean by that is, you know. When Time had 4.5 million readers, 50 percent would churn every year. And so you spend all your time replacing people who leave. Um, the biggest thing we've been able to accomplish is we've sort of slowed that process down. The magazine is now at a place where people are renewing, um, and we're spending less time maintaining the file and more time trying to grow it. So that's all good.
0: to so about 700,000 a year.
1: Where people are purchasing? 700, 720, where you can say they're purchasing at a rate that really helps us. And some is airline mile redemption and some is um, institutional. So, like, you know, a business school will subscribe on behalf of all of its students, which is great for us in the long term, and we may take a little bit of a wash on it in the the short term. So, what's your budget? I'm not going to tell you that, but I will say that it is tight, Um, that the tolerance for this experiment within Bloomberg is um, great, but not indulgent. And so um, I watch every penny, and there's no business class travel for my guys. Um, You know, On the Bloomberg News side, anything over four hours you're flying, I abolish that. I want our money to go into stories and into staff. Um, We are not, if you were to look at us just as a single line item, we are not profitable, but that's not what we were purchased to be. We were purchased to draw people into Bloomberg. Um, That said, I think we can be. I think we can be pretty rapidly. Um, You know, just as sort of some of the things that we're not allowed to do because of where we are, and by the way, I wouldn't trade it, we have to print on recyclable paper, which is a huge cost. Um, We don't get the benefit of buying on bulk, so where a Time Inc. or a Meredith can buy paper by the Megaton, we're a little bit out there on our own. Um, Our founder insists that we all sit in the most expensive real estate in the world, in New York City. Um, My overhead for snacks and other things, as Martin can attest, is, is large. Um, but that's not why we exist.
3: You told me, I believe, that if you could manage this in a different kind of way—not maybe a better way, but a different way—you could be making money. Yeah. So you've got a revenue stream that is that we've lends got a, itself to making money.
1: We've got a revenue stream that lends itself to making money. That I wake up scared about every day. It's nothing. I take nothing for granted. Yes. Sir. Hello. <clears throat> you read to a magazine
2: that even you were not reading. I would like to know, how did you approach and what was the process of transforming the newsroom, of uh, changing uh, the people inside? And what were your first measures in the, in the newsroom, the first weeks or the first months? How did you start sure. changing them?
1: Um Well, look, I mean, intentional or not, there are many people who are up for this job because um, there are many more editors than positions in this day and age. And when they hired me, um, I arrived without much of a business pedigree. I was significantly younger than some of the staff. So there were a lot of people who were willing to depart the field when I arrived, <laughs> only, maybe even eager. Um, but you know, I, I, I had a pretty distinct idea of what I wanted to do, which was make it relevant. And, and the only thing you can measure in print is you look around your newsroom and there are people talking about the stories that you are doing. If no one's reading out of obligation, you shouldn't be publishing anything out of obligation. And so when I would hear people say, yeah, it's this kind of story. You know, We did something like this three years ago. I'd say, well, then don't do it. <laughs> don't do it today. We don't have to cover anything. Because the fact is, there are all these other places doing the story. What we have to do is make things that people will read in the present tense because they're good. So you know, journalism is fairly self-selecting. Um, and no one likes to withhold their misanthropy. So I, it's, it, there's, it's an easy enough room to walk into and know who's happy and who's on board. And um, the people who weren't, they either left of their own volition or mm-hmm. it was very clear that we weren't going to have a harmonious relationship. And I, you know, I, I don't apologize for that. Um, we had something that we wanted to get done, and people who weren't interested in it you know, within six months. There was a staff of people that was small but that believed that that was the idea for this product. Uh, I have <clears throat> 72, and that 72 includes writers, editors, copy editors, art directors, photo editors, and production. It's a small staff. Now, I do use Bloomberg News Copy um, and sometimes can reach into the pool and get writers from various places, and that's a huge asset. But um, You know, 72 putting out 50,000 words a week on 64 editorial pages, that's not a lot of people. And so um, the jobs are much harder, but I think they ought to be.
2: Do you have any foreign staff?
1: We do, a few, yeah.
2: Yes, Um, I was curious. You had mentioned earlier that when you were at Time,
3: there was this understanding among the staff there that people had an obligation to read Time, and you always rejected that from the get-go. Yeah. I've always assumed as a reader that in the business space that you could benefit from some sort of competitive advantage by being in the business space because there was an obligation among business people to read business news because Mm -hmm. some way, sometime, there might be, it might lead to making a good business decision that's going to make them money. Um, So I was just curious if you'd found this being your first time doing for a business publication, if there is some kind of market advantage there, some that you can benefit from? I think that
1: fear has dissipated. Um, You know, there are plenty of people who, um, out of habit, read the Wall Street Journal or read Business Week. But, you know, look, they can find out what we published from any number of sources. And that may drive me crazy, but, you know, I I did an interview with Tim Cook that moved markets, right? It's a big deal in our world. Henry Blodgett did eight separate stories on that interview. You never needed to see my interview to find out what the news was. And I think that fear is dissipated, and and it forces us to confront that reality, which is, uh, you know, you got to fight for their attention everywhere. You can't count on them coming to you, even for your own information.
3: Do you have a way of thinking about what the added value of Business Week's coverage of something that everybody is coverage covering is?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the more interesting ways to measure that is in around obituaries. Um, where everybody has a couple stored up, um, and the question is what do you have to say that 's different right um, and sometimes you know I, I remember the file at the time was massive massive obit file. I know the times you know one of the one of the people observing the, the Abramson era has noted that more obituaries have appeared to, uh, on a one, and I actually think that 's very smart because the Times does them better than anybody else that 's a real strength. Are we doing them better than anybody else not really, and if we can't do them in a timely fashion, we ought not to do them. So that's a negative example. But another one is you know, the Swiss uh, fat cat banker law. Everybody see this, restricting pay in Switzerland? Um, and there are a lot of people who <clears throat> sort of reported it straight. I happen to have a guy who lived in Switzerland and who could explain the very strange dichotomy between um, all of the wealthy tax refugees in Switzerland and the very strange populist movement there. So. Even though he, start, he got a six-hour late start on it, that story added value and was something that only we could do. And so it, these are not – you know I, I, I think the biggest takeaway about how we do things editorially is that um, there's no single decision. What it now is down to is thousands of decisions in any given week about how you are going to dictate your coverage, and you hope that you're good enough that that amounts to an aesthetic and a voice that's kind of uniquely yours.
3: Would you, for instance, want uh, the wealth gap to be a Business Week signature story that you do a lot (coughs) from on a continuing basis? Or, or, I mean, is that something not directly business but about money? Uh,
1: Theoretically, I I mean, I I find that the more you you tend to dictate themes, the less receptive people are, and that these things generally do present themselves. Um, But what I do like doing is um, when something is in the zeitgeist, um, committing. To covering it in that moment. So um, you know, to your question about politics and policy, last year we did an entire issue before the election that literally just answered the question, are you better off than you were four years ago? It's a very data-driven kind of question. Um, and we took Reagan's speech, which was actually a, a speech in four questions, and split the magazine up into four and answered each one of them with as much data as we could and gave you an actual answer. That's an example of something that everyone is talking about, but. The amount of labor that goes into it is intense. And one of the things that I do pride us on is that my 72 people work really hard. Um, And Evan will tell you, I mean, that's just something that I think I I learned early on that if you want to, you don't always have to be the smartest if you're working the hardest.
0: Well, you're also
4: the smartest. That's that's, that's flattering. Last question. Is it possible you're missing the market? I am as a small businessman. And I read Business Week all the time. Now, maybe the Wall Street Journal and Forbes are for the big hitters. But I'll bet you 90% of businessmen are small, independent people. And they love to read a story about a couple of women who decided to make pocketbooks and turn it into a $100 million business. They love to read those stories. It gives them hope and inspiration. Now, there's nothing out there like that anymore. You've turned Time Magazine, you've turned Business Week into a Time Magazine with a business orientation, would be my guess, would be my guess.
1: So you should.
4: What uh, happened uh, to uh, that market? Well, I
1: I would recommend that you give it a read, because we do um, small business regularly, Um, not just in its own focus on small business section, which we do on a monthly basis. But small business is a, a pretty big component of what we do in part, as you say, because people do like to read stories that flatter them. And small business stories of, you know, we have a feature called Small to Big, which is actually talking about one individual business and how it progressed from being a small startup into something that's not just sustainable, but someone is now a successful CEO. But I will tell you this. We are missing some market at all times, and I, I'm very proud of that. We can't own every market. The lesson of the last 15 years is you cannot hope to own every market, because this world rewards specialty. And if you are thinking you can own every piece of any market, you're wrong. The only place I see right now that owns almost everything is ESPN. It owns sports in a way that, frankly, in the old days, there would probably be an antitrust investigation. (laughs) But nobody else has that right now, and I don't think anybody else is ever going to have it again. So I do have to alienate certain markets to have the share that we have right now. It's just a reality. Josh, thank you. Okay, thank on. you for coming. You. We're, we're going
3: to it.